I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Why do you like to garden? Perhaps you enjoy growing your own food to eat or watching your dahlias, daffodils or delphiniums create magnificent floral displays. Or like me, do you just like being outside and watching things that you planted grow and develop every day? One thing we gardeners probably all have in common is that we all enjoy being close to nature, welcoming wildlife and connecting with the natural world. And the natural world is without question under threat. The UN's Climate Change Conference is well underway in Glasgow, so in today's show we're exploring how we can all be more sustainable gardeners. I'm Verity Battle, an RHS team leader, and welcome to gardening with the RHS. I'm currently sat in the trials garden here at Wisley, and after a very frosty cold start, the sun has come out and it's looking absolutely glorious. Earlier on in the year in the trials garden, we planted a bed of annuals that deal better with uh, drought tolerant conditions. And it's really important to try and plant for the conditions that you have in your garden. One, the plants will do better. And two, it means you can water less. I think that's also really important to me is reducing our plastic usage. And so I'm keen to research suppliers who might be able to offer us an alternative for plastic or look at ways in which we can reuse any plastic that we do get into the garden. And of course, all of these points link in really nicely to our new sustainability strategy, which was launched earlier this year. We've committed within the decade that we will become net positive for nature and people and to encourage and enable gardeners to do the same. We've made a list of pledges. 
such as capturing and reducing more greenhouse gas emissions than we emit, reversing habitat destruction in gardens, and recycling more water in RHS gardens and shows. And some of those parts we really need to think about are often more petrol powered than they should be. I'm talking about leaf blowers, hedge trimmers, lawn mowers, all tools that can emit huge amounts of pollutants. Sally Next is the queen of low carbon gardening. So I spoke to her about how we can reduce our fossil fuel use when we garden. Hi Sally, thanks for joining us. And to start off, can you tell us what you think are the worst tools for petrol use? Well, hello Verity. All of them, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> That's, that covers everything. Yeah. <laughs> petrol really shouldn't have a place in a garden anymore, I think, in our current sort of climate change world. The thing is that technology has really moved on in this area. And I think that that has really been a game changer in terms of the way that we can look after our gardens. So lithium ion battery technology, it's the same technology as powers electric cars, is completely applicable now to every kind of petrol tool that you can imagine for the garden, right up to ride on mowers, everything. Incidentally, if you're worried that battery power is going to be sort of in the bad old days, it used to be a bit weedy, didn't it? And didn't not quite up to the job. These days, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's absolutely the case that battery powered tools are every bit as powerful as petrol tools. I use them myself in my garden. I mean, you know, I've trimmed down a lot of kind of long grass and things. I, I reworld in parts of my garden. So I have quite tall plants at times, which I need to cut down. Things like brambles and um, nettles and hogweed and that kind of thing. And uh, it copes with them no problem at all. To help people really get on board with moving away from petrol use, are you able to uh, give us any statistics on petrol tools just to highlight why they are so damaging? Yeah, well, I mean, I used to use petrol tools myself, like most of us, I think, probably. And um, I stopped pretty soon, actually, as soon as I came across the research that's out there that shows quite how damaging they are, not just to the general environment, but to us. So, for example, unfortunately, they haven't really researched lawnmowers, particularly recently, but the most recent research that they've had on lawnmowers put the emissions that were given out by a petrol lawnmower for one hour, so in other words, the rough time that you would spend mowing your lawn on a Saturday afternoon, that's the equivalent of a car travelling 150 kilometres or 93 miles. That's a long old way, a long journey. And to be quite honest, I don't really want to walk behind a car for 150 kilometres and breathe in the fumes that must come out the back of it. Similarly, they've done much more recent research on other petrol powered tools, things like leaf blowers and hedge trimmers and strimmers. And uh, what they did was they took them to a vehicle emissions station, the kind of place where you'd go for an MOT, you know. They put them through a regular vehicle emissions test and they still don't know what the exact figure is on them because it went off the scale. It was so high, the emissions from the back of these tools, that they couldn't register them on the kind of testing equipment that is given out for cars. And we have very sensible laws which govern the emissions from cars so that they don't damage the environment and so they don't pollute the air that we breathe. Why there aren't the same emissions regulations on petrol-powered tools, I do not know. So... Obviously, we definitely all want to be looking at changes we can make in our gardens. To help us, what are some of your favourite tools that have made the switch to eco-friendly? You know, I know you can get sort of leaf blowers now, but what are some of your favourites? 
Well, I tend not to use leaf blowers. I like a garden rake. It's a jolly good uh, workout. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I tend not to use power tools unless I really have to. But the ones that I do use regularly, I have to strim because I have a slightly unruly garden that needs, you know, it would get very, very out of hand if I didn't strim it. But I try and cut down the amount of strimming that I do. It's kind of that way around. So I have a strimmer. I have a lawnmower. I couldn't do without either of those two. Well, to be honest, I rent a hedge trimmer. So I do as much as I possibly can by hand. I cut down on the amount that I do simply by doing things like reducing the amount of lawn that I mow, reducing the frequency that I mow it in. So I have areas that I only mow once a month, areas that I only mow once a year. Actually, I do that with strimmer. And then in addition, you can do things like making the areas of lawn that you mow straighter and more easy to mow so that it takes you less time. If you have a smaller garden, you're actually quids in because like electric tools, which are cabled, those are actually probably the most eco-friendly of all of the gardening tools that you can use. They're only really feasible in smaller gardens. I mean, I don't think I could reach the end of my garden with a, a corded tool. But if you have a smaller garden, then you can use corded electric tools and then you don't have to use a lithium-ion battery. And there are drawbacks with lithium-ion batteries because you need to uh, use a lot of energy to mine lithium. And in addition to that, they're very hard to recycle. So we actually are heading towards a bit of a lithium-ion battery crisis, as it were, in this country because of the, all the business with the electric cars and so on. Well, that applies just as much to garden tools as well. So if you can stick to corded electric tools, make sure that you get your electricity supply from a renewable energy supplier. And that's probably the greenest option of all. Absolutely. Yeah, quite agree. So looking ahead, how could the RHS, big gardening companies and the government be doing more? And where do you think some of the responsibility lies? Oh, well, it's with everybody, isn't it? I would certainly really like to see legislation on emissions from petrol power tools. The second is making, this is actually starting to happen, the companies are starting increasingly to push battery powered tools in favour of petrol tools. So if you look at any of the major power tool manufacturers these days, you'll find that their headliners are battery powered now, um, whereas they didn't used to be. But the most important thing, I think, there are 30 million of us 30 million gardeners in this country. And we have huge power as consumers in the choices that we make, in the everyday choices we make. If we refuse to buy petrol tools, nobody will sell them anymore. It's pretty straightforward. So it's down to us about the choices we make and about the things that we do in our private back gardens. That's what in the end is going to make the difference. Oh, well, thank you, Sally. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And I have to say, I've learned lots. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, thank you. You walk into the front doors of CCA, there is a blue cabinet and the cabinet has a few different doors and drawers and you open it up and inside are boxes and jars filled with packed seeds. That's Rowan Lear talking to us from the COP26 host city, Glasgow. She's describing the site of her seed library. And each envelope is labelled with some information about the seeds, uh, who saved the seeds and their variety. And so that's one way to think about the library. So we've got little tiny seeds like poppy seeds or brassica seeds. Inside other packets you might have some charred seeds, which are kind of these novelly, really interesting looking seeds. 
uh, I know we've just packed some nigella seeds, uh, also known as love in the mist. Um, we also have larger seeds, so we have beans and peas. So yeah, that's the kind of description of the seed library, um, which anyone can access at any time uh, when the CCA building is open. Sounds idyllic. The scheme aims to increase seed sovereignty, as well as making sure local seeds are used in gardens across Glasgow. The other way to describe a seed library and what it looks like is thinking about how all of these seeds have made their way into the hands of people around the city. Um, so maybe they've been uh, planting them out in their back greens or in their gardens. Maybe we've got seedlings growing on windowsills. And that is also the seed library. The seed library is the people who've borrowed seeds and where those seeds are living now. I think the initial impetus for the seed library came from wanting to make sure everyone had access to good quality seed for growing. Seeds are not cheap, um, especially kind of really good nutritious seeds adapted for our climate. A lot of it has to do with taking back control of our food system, of relearning the skills of seed saving, uh, thinking more closely about what we're growing. Um, how appropriate it is for perhaps your culture, the conditions in which you're growing, and thinking about whether those seeds have a heritage or a connection to the land where you live. While there are a couple of growers and sellers of herb seeds and of flower seeds in Scotland, we don't have a commercial vegetable seed producer here in the country. And this is a bit of a problem because it means that the seeds that we buy are always coming from elsewhere. So we're ordering them in from countries where the conditions and the climate might be quite different. It also means that there's certain heritage varieties with connections to Scotland. Maybe they were bred here, but we have to buy them from outside Scotland. The Seed Library is one of the ways that we can start to return people's attention to seeds in Scotland and in time, hopefully, contribute to perhaps a seed cooperative. So we've had lots of amazing people getting involved with the seed library over the last two years. One of the people who has been using the library is Rebecca. I'm trying to remember when I actually started using the seed library. And she has deposited an incredible number of seeds. I like the idea of having seeds that are really local to us because you feel like they should grow better in our environment. You're not getting lost in a seed catalogue looking and wondering what should I grow, which ones should I pick, what's going to do well. And it just keeps everything more local and more kind of alive. My favourite seed from the seed library is actually one that I was so excited when I got through the post and it's pink passion chard. When I got the, this chard through the post, it sounds like a silly one to be excited about, but it's something that I had seen a lot when I was in New Zealand. They use it in just planting schemes and just borders and beds and everything. And I thought that was really incredible to use an edible food as a decorative food. And because it's got this really vibrant pink colour, it just looks amazing. Uh, so Rebecca's come to a couple of our Gathering the Seed events and has saved a lot of seeds for us. Uh, she saved lots of flower seeds. I was just packing them the other day in the library, as well as vegetables. I think she returned some beetroot recently, which was uh, grown originally and borrowed from the seed library. 
it's really exciting to have someone like that. People think you have to have a garden space and you have to have lots of available room, but that's really not the case. You could pick up herb seeds from the library and grow them just on a windowsill. So you can start small. You don't have to think big and, oh, I need an allotment or a garden or anything like that. Just a pot by the door would be fine. I mean, I think seed libraries are important because it makes local seed available for everyone and it also increases like the biodiversity within our garden structures because just from going to the library I've been introduced to different varieties that should grow really well like I've got some Sutherland kale it was and I'm excited to grow that next year and it just gives you different varieties that you might not have found otherwise. Local community-based seed libraries are really important because they're sort of the front face of seed sovereignty and also things like climate justice and social justice. Perhaps my hopes for the future of the seed library are not as conventional as might be expected. So you'd imagine that the seed library could become a much bigger project and maybe with bases all over the city and somehow become this sort of seed octopus. But actually what I think I hope for the future of the seed library is that it becomes disseminated and dispersed and kind of so ordinary to save seed that there's no need for a seed library anymore because it's something we all do uh, and we all do it as a matter of course. That would be my hope for the seed library. Thanks, Rowan and Rebecca. At Wisley, we're very lucky as we have a dedicated team who collect seed from our gardens and run the member seed scheme. To help ensure your seed collecting is successful, I suggest you follow these few tips. Collect ripe seeds on a dry day, then clean off any excess material which surrounds them. Most need to be kept dry. Envelopes are ideal for storing them and it's easy to label them with the contents too. Peak time for collecting is between June and October. And a good tip is to look out for seed pods turning brown, as that should be when the seed is ready to collect. Now, we're gonna think about designing a garden from a completely different perspective. If pollinators design gardens, what would humans see? Artist Dr. Daisy Ginsberg is asking this very question with her new outdoor installation at the Eden Project in Cornwall. She's using it to get us gardeners to change how we think about the way our plots look. Our eyes have evolved to sense colour and depth in a certain way. And I think what we don't think about when we're in a garden is how other organisms see it. And so a green to us is not a green to another insect, for example. So when you look at a plant, it's not how it actually looks, it's just how we perceive it. Her living artwork is essentially a garden that's been designed with pollinators in mind. She's used an algorithm that analyses things like seasonality and space to create a planting scheme that's purely for pollinators, without human thoughts about taste getting in the way. And growers across the country can join her in making this new type of garden which we'll hear more about in a moment.
But first, we wanted to understand exactly what this new garden will look like. The living artwork that we've planted at the Eden Project is up on the top slopes, looking down across the bowl and its very famous biomes filled with the rainforest. And this garden is going to stand out. It's going to be this colourful billboard throughout the year. There are drifts and bold stripes and circuits for insects like bees who memorise the locations of different plants that they visit every day. And as you walk through the path through the middle of this garden, it's on quite a steep slope and it's a long site. And you will be faced with towering echiums on one side, patches of heather, but there's a lot of euphorbia in here, so this bright acid green. So I think the end effect hopefully will challenge the average British gardener who has a maybe more tempered palette to suddenly think, well, why do I choose the plants that I choose? Why can't I have huge echiums next to heather? And what, what does it mean to look at a garden that looks this crazy? I think that Planting for pollinators is increasingly something that we're all aware of as we create gardens. We still, I think, do that from the perspective of humans. So we choose the plants that we like. And there's actually something much more complex behind that, which is the interrelationships between different pollinators and the specific plants which they've co-evolved with. So I'd never really thought about this before, but Eden's beekeeper, Roger Dewhurst, talked to me about the mutualistic pulses, as he described it, when certain flowers come into bloom, because that's when their pollinators are emerging. So I'd never really thought about why different flowers come out at different times of year, but that's why. Pollinators are in desperate jeopardy. We're seeing insect numbers crashing around the world due to human activity, from habitat loss to pesticide use. And without pollinators, we're completely stuck. Our ecosystems would collapse. So when we think about creating a garden, we have to ask, well, who is it for? Are we making it for ourselves to take respite, to enjoy? Well, yes, but are we really the primary users of that garden? And actually, can we think about it instead as the plants and their pollinators being the main focus? So when it came to choosing plants, we put together this plant palette and it includes all sorts of different kinds of things from oxide daisies, which are favourites of honeybees, solitary bees, flies, beetles, moths and butterflies, to my particular favourite, which I insisted had to be in there, which is the Echium pinanana, which I think of as a skyscraper for pollinators. You get an incredibly dense amount of flowers per square metre and moths, solitary bees and butterflies visit those. And other things that I really love, which are in there, things like Flomus or Russian sage, which are visited by long-tongued bumblebees. So some plants have really specific pollinators. And the pollinator pathmaker algorithm figures this all out in a way that a human would really struggle to, so that there's something for everyone in this garden. When I received the commission from the Eden Project at the very beginning of the first lockdown last year. I suggested making this living sculpture at Eden. And then I suggested that we could 
put the whole thing online. So the same algorithm that we would use to design the garden at Eden could be put online so that anyone could play with it. And the result is pollinator.art, a website which you can visit. And you can use the same algorithm by entering your garden conditions, choosing your location and playing with a few of the different features of it to create a garden design. Then you can explore this garden. And by explore it, what I mean is that I have painted every single flower in the database across three seasons. And you can travel through it, fly around it, zoom into it, and also see it like a pollinator, see it across different seasons. And then you can plant it. So you press a button and you get a full PDF with your plant shopping list, instructions how to plant it, your planting plan, and your unique edition number because this is an editioned artwork and you can have your own if you plant it. My dad is a topiary enthusiast and he has created a garden over 30 years filled with topiary and I spent my childhood trimming hedges and there were very few flowers and in a way this is my midlife rebellion and I think that in a way it's both a reaction to the formal garden and it's also very much part of that tradition. This is a controlled process but it looks very different. So if you even want to try with a little patch of your garden, I'd invite you just to see if these are the plants that you would have chosen. And if you don't want to do it, I'd still just invite you to, as you select new plants for your garden, to think about which specific pollinators you're catering for. And hopefully at the very least, this will inspire you to think about those choices. And that's what we need, is just to be putting as many resources out there for the pollinators that we rely on. when you plant one of these gardens, and I just planted my own a few weeks ago, it's a funny sense that you get as I bought the plants and put them in the ground. I felt like I wasn't really doing this for me. There was a a moment of transformation. I was really more of a caretaker. The process was out of my hands. I didn't design the garden. I was provided a planting plan by the algorithm. And my job was just to put it in the ground. And my ongoing job will be to care and tend for it. And there's this moment of sort of realization that this isn't for me. And I think it's that transformational moment that I really hope people who plant a pollinator path, make a garden, will experience for themselves. Sounds amazing. Thanks, Daisy. Salvias are great for bees in summer, but to help pollinators in the spring, you could see if you could get your hands on any last minute crocus bulbs from garden centres and put them in now. As they flower early, the pollinators absolutely love them and they're a great source of nectar. Well, that takes us to the end of this week's show. Before I go today, I just wanted to leave you with a job to be thinking about this week. And after talking to Sally, One of the things on my mind is leaf clearing. It's top of the list at this time of year, and I like Sally's approach to use a rake where you can and get a workout at the same time. Leave the petrol blower in the shed. If you're feeling inspired to act and want to learn more, 
visit our show notes or rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast where you can find links to lots of great articles on how to garden with the environment in mind and to the RHS sustainability strategy too. I'm Verity Battle. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.